Today on The Future of Fandom, ride along as one motorsports brand races ahead in the digital landscape. My name's Adam Connor, I'm your host, and our specific focus on this episode is how NASCAR is building a next-generation fan experience. In particular, you'll hear from Tim Clark, who is their chief digital officer. You might not know it, but NASCAR was the first sport to return to the airwaves following COVID's initial rise due primarily to its virtual savvy and realism. Since then, the sport has only expanded its digital footprint, and today we explore how it's evolving side-by-side with the sport's on-track product. We also expand on the importance of personality in building motorsports community, something which any fan of F1 will appreciate, plus how brands get involved given how sponsor-forward NASCAR is in all aspects of its existence. Tim's on the front row of it all, and I'm happy he could make a pit stop here with us. So let's put you in the passenger seat as we predict the future with NASCAR and Tim Clark. Tim, it's a true honor to chat with you for the podcast. How you doing? I'm good, Adam. I appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you and appreciate having me on. As a lifelong diehard of this sport. The first thing I want to say before I ask any like questions about the business uh, is thanks for leading the charge because it's been through so many different stages of its life in the time since I've started watching, which was about 1997 for those listening at home. And plenty of things have occurred. I've gotten the opportunity to meet a couple folks within the sport. I've gotten a few moments where I've been unable to speak when I've been walking next to drivers in pit lanes over the years. So for allowing me to do this eloquently here (laughs) in a produced environment, I appreciate it. So thank you first for all your contributions to the sport. Uh, My pleasure. I grew up uh, a fan of the sport as well. have been going to races for about as long as I can remember. So it's it's been a a really exciting experience to turn something like that into a a career and, and you know, to your point, I don't know too many sports, uh, if any, that have the passionate fan base that we are lucky enough to have. What was your first race? Can I start there? Yeah. Uh, so I've thought about this. I can't recall the year, uh, probably because it was before I was cognizant of what year it was. But I grew up not too far from uh, what was then Richmond International Raceway, which is now Richmond Raceway. And my dad was a police officer in that county. Uh, and so in those days you couldn't, there was no way you could buy a ticket to go to those races. You had to know someone. So, you know, it it was me tagging along, uh, from as far back as I could remember, uh, in the eighties to attend, uh, every race I could at, at Richmond Raceway. Richmond is also the track closest to me, although that was not the first one I went to. I went to a, uh, first one I went to was Dover. I don't think so it was 2001, but it wasn't the one that Junior won at and flew the flag. That was awesome. That was a great moment. I think it was the Bush race at that point. I think I went on a Saturday because my dad had work like early Monday morning. So we went to the Saturday race. But a wonderful experience. Anybody listening to this who have who are already, we're already off the rails. If you have not been to a NASCAR race, you got to try it. You got to try it once just because it's for the untrained eye and ear, it's going to be a crazy sensory spectacle. And then obviously, if you're a fan, you'll know and love it and you'll know what you're getting into. But Tim, today, your you know role at NASCAR being chief digital officer means that you're working on a lot of the things which aren't necessarily on the track at any given time. 
So let me begin with the combination of the two that I think we most clearly saw, of course, in 2020. My personal experience with the sport from a digital side began in 1999 when I got NASCAR 99 for the N64. And at one of my dad's brother's houses, I think I tried NASCAR Racing 3, which was the precursor to the great PC line of games that Papyrus Games did in the early 2000s. Those were the ways in which I interacted with the sport was through games. But that has developed wildly through today across all your social presences. But it seemed like we got back to the games in 2020. The sport was the first of any major sport to return to some semblance of competition through iRacing, which, if listeners don't know, is the premier e-sport for NASCAR. It's officially sanctioned by NASCAR. And that was pretty much forced on us all, of course, because of the pandemic. And I think you guys did wonderfully well putting a, uh, the, the experience together and having it be as close as possible to the real-life thing. I'd just be curious to learn first from you what that was like to go digital first immediately right at the beginning of a season. You know, I think it's a good combination of lucky and good, Adam. Um, so I, I think, you know, the lucky thing for us in particular is is having a partner like iRacing. And, and I think to a lot of, of maybe new fans or casual fans or viewers that saw iRacing in, in early 2020, I think they maybe were, were under the impression that that came together very quickly. Uh, it actually was the manifestation of a, of a partnership that has been in existence to some degree for, you know, more than a decade. Um, you know, to your point, iRacing is the, you know, they, they don't like it when you call it a game. They get really offended and, and rightfully so because it is a simulation. It's incredibly lifelike to the point where it, it is able to straddle the line of being kind of an, an esports gaming uh, type of environment as well as a, a training vehicle for, for some of our drivers. And so having that partnership and, and having our drivers aware of it and familiar with it and, and, you know, in many cases active on that platform, you know, became one of those things that as the conversations were happening in real time of, of having to suspend the kind of the real life on track action as, as the pandemic set in, you know, those conversations were also happening of, you know, we've got a virtual environment that exists. It, you know, it, it could be something that we, we want to turn to you know, at the time, not knowing how long the kind of quote unquote real life delay would happen. So being able to pivot into the, the virtual environment and into uh, iRacing and then having a broadcast partner that, um, you know, was agreeable enough to put that on television, you know, within eight days of us suspending the season was pretty remarkable. And, and honestly, I think if you look back on it, one of those things that I think we moved so quickly that that we didn't even have time to to overthink it, which you know sometimes we uh, we have a tendency to do, but it, it moved so quickly and everyone was so aligned to it from the very beginning, uh, we were able to put together something that you know I, I think was was truly special. Yeah, I didn't mean to misspeak there and call it a game myself. You know, being <laughs> a, a customer of iRacing uh, at various points since 2011. Yeah, it is, and only ever, only ever having been in a in a real car like one time at a short track, it's an incredibly life-like experience, and yeah, it's amazing. Eight days of that turnaround, and like, thank God that Fox at that point was willing to do something because I think it was also really important to get back to something and to be first was especially powerful in my mind. From that time, what do you think? 
is going to stick. And if not the half a season of iRacing on Fox instead of real racing, of course, that's not going to happen. What elements of that eight-day transition and the playbook you wrote will remain as future seasons play out? So I think there are a couple of things, and, and I, I'll, I'll focus you know, your question on, on two. One of them is, is on the driver's side, and, and one of them is on the um, you know, kind of engagement of audience side. On the driver's side, I think one of the things, if not the biggest thing that, that made that such a success back in, in 2020 uh, was the fact that it gave you know, the drivers an opportunity to, to really showcase their personalities where you know, they, they, weren't, they weren't wearing helmets. You know, they weren't strapped into a race car with protective equipment. They were, uh, in most cases, had a camera on them and in, in most cases uh, were, were mic'd up and, and their audio was being brought through on the broadcast. So, you know, I think for, for not only existing fans that were tuning in, but certainly for new fans to, to kind of get exposed to the sport that way where, where our drivers had that unique platform to really show off their personalities and, and who they are. And in many cases, their families or their kids or their pets being part of it, right? I mean, it was such a unique uh, opportunity that I think it, it allowed us to, to maybe carry that through. So you know this from being a fan, but you know we bring through in-car cameras and we bring through in-car scanner audio so that you've got that experience when we resumed real racing, I, I think there was some carry through from fans that had been exposed to it for the first time. So I, I think that's that's certainly um, you know a, a big piece of of the continuation. I think the other one though is I think that you know perhaps the the NASCAR fan of 2022 uh, was introduced to the sport for the first time through iRacing, but I think a NASCAR driver of 2029 could have been introduced to NASCAR for the first time through iRacing as well. You know, the the fact that that we've got this esports platform and this partnership with iRacing is incredibly unique. You know, we've we've made the point before of you don't get to refine your skills as a potential NFL quarterback by playing Madden, but you do, you know, potentially have that opportunity to uh, to get accustomed to the sport of of auto racing by way of iRacing. So you know, I think the the opportunities for development of fans is is certainly evident, but but I also think it's a really interesting way for us to consider the the next evolution of of drivers. Well, that's for sure. And listeners who are unfamiliar with the sport, we have seen that play out a time or two, where today's drivers began in these virtual digital environments, very close to real life in terms of the product, but that's where they cut their teeth. I think it's an interesting insight that you point out that the fan of 22 may have been introduced through that simulation or recently through its explosion into what was a forced mainstream. And all day at the sport, you're not just thinking about what we're doing with iRacing, you're talking about the entire digital landscape of what NASCAR brings to the table. And I know that beginning with next season, we're going to be looking at a new car. We're going to new tracks. That's going to continue to evolve as it always does. How will the digital experience evolve right alongside it? What other things are you putting together to thrill and wow the fan of 22, who you hope remains a fan for life? Right. So, yeah, to your point, uh, the next-gen car will make its uh, on-track debut in 22. And it's, you know, a huge, pivotal 
transformational moment in time for the sport and one that I think we're all extremely excited about. You know, obviously that puts the the onus on us to create a, um, you know, a second screen, a fan engagement experience that's befitting of that car. What I would tell you preemptively, you know, going into the 22 season is I'm not going to get it right. We're not going to get that experience right out of the gate. And I think we, we almost have to be okay with that. And the reason I say that is, you know, we're going to build this experience around a car that's never been driven before in competition. And we're going to make some assumptions based on what our fans have traditionally wanted and what we're able to do with the data that is available off of this car that hasn't been in previous iterations of a NASCAR race car. But what is really going to dictate what that experience should look like is what the engagement around the, the new car and the new race formats, you know, what that looks like in 22. And, and I think what is, you know, it's certainly important that we get out of the gate strong in 22 with our fan experience, but I would argue that it's even more important for us to be adaptable to, to what we're seeing and what we're hearing from the fans in 22 to evolve throughout the course of that season. And then certainly get it, you know, not perfect, but, but certainly closer to perfect in, in 23, because it's an ongoing process. It's an ongoing evolution of, you know, how do you take a, a sport that has upwards of 40 cars going nearly 200 miles an hour on a track thousands of miles away and create a second screen experience around that. It's, you know, the, the blessing of all of those data points and camera angles and, and audio streams. And then the, the curse of, of trying to take all of that data and all of that information and consolidate it into a fan experience that's not completely overwhelming, especially for a new fan who who's using that as, you know, kind of an educational opportunity. So I think that we're excited about 22, but I think we'll be even better in 23. And I'll be waiting on bated breath as a fan to see how that ultimately manifests. But it's an important thing that you bring up because we race all over the U.S. for now for the sport, which means that most times, yes, the event is happening thousands of miles away. And yet the mandate to have a robust digital experience remains of high importance and I think will continue to grow similar to another global motorsport, which is definitely global in F1. If you're a U.S. fan that watches that, you get to see the action very, very rarely, even in North America. And yet, they have managed to put together an environment through which the sport can be broadly enjoyed. I know you're well aware of that. They also do a lot of work to make sure that people know the drivers as people and the teams I wonder what, if any, page you look at that book and borrow for the way that NASCAR moving forward attempts to attract a similarly global audience. Yeah, I, look, I think we are all, um, you know, kind of number one fans of, of F1 and number two students of F1 and for that matter, every other sport and, and motorsport, I think. You know, I've spent the better part of my career working in sports, and I, I think there's a, a a misconception that leagues and teams and and sports are are competing with one another. And look, to a certain extent, I think that's probably fair, right? In in that sports fans are are generally fans of multiple sports, and and so you're you're looking for more eyeballs and more engagement. But 
know, I would say specifically with something like F1, we look at the excitement level uh, and engagement with fans and consumers around motorsports as very much a, a positive thing for everyone. I think they've had a very exciting season and, and obviously have a lot of star power. And, you know, one thing that stands out in particular with F1 is, is what they've done with their Netflix show, Drive to Survive. You know, it's a very entertaining show on a, on a major streaming platform. But I think the key to the success of that show has been personalities and it's team principals, it's crew members, it's uh, it's drivers. I mean, it's throughout the paddock where you really expose some of these personalities and given people, especially casual fans, a reason to tune in and follow those those broadcasts and follow this season. Um, you know, I don't think it's incredibly unique in terms of follow docs and and content and and behind the scenes type of of executions have happened with uh, with other sports and with other league properties. But uh, I think what they have done over over the last few years with that show in particular and and the evolution that it's had on fan engagement specifically domestically has been really impressive to see and and certainly something we've got a big focus on as well. Well, once again, let me say I look forward to seeing that because the drivers have a huge impact on the fans' perception of the sport, so much or perhaps even more so than the any given change that NASCAR as a governing body brings to light. And speaking to those personalities and, and what they do on and off the track, in this case mostly on, we've seen them diversify even the types of motorsport that they get themselves involved in, all the way from Daytona down to the dirt tracks. I'm curious how you, as the uh, the holder of the digital experience, you know, the flagship experience going forward. How does that flow from the national scene all the way down to the local tracks that race on Tuesdays and Wednesdays? Well, it's interesting that you use the word flow, Adam. Uh, a partnership that we recently announced uh, was with Flow Racing, and, and that partnership was specifically designed to increase the exposure uh, of some of those non-national series NASCAR events and, and tracks and, uh, and races on a, a platform like, like Flow Racing that, that is distributed widely and, and has a big investment behind it. You know, again, back to, to what we talked about with F1, I think we're firm believers that, you know, the passion and the fandom around motorsports in the U.S. is, is good for everyone. You know, the, the rising tide lifts all boats analogy, you know, especially for us where we've got drivers like Kyle Larson, who has a dominant championship season and then is, you know, on, on Tuesday or, or Wednesday racing in California and the next week racing in, in Iowa, you know, there is, there's no sport quite like that where you could take a champion caliber driver and, and, and have those drivers race in other forms of motorsports or, uh, in other series or, you know, completely different vehicles uh, just a few days later. So I think we're incredibly passionate about that. And, and I think for, you know, specifically on the media side or on the digital side, we're looking for partnerships like the one with Flow or, or like the one we, we created a few years ago with Speedsport to put content behind that and amplify it, put it on a bigger stage to kind of be authentic in how we're telling those stories and how we're creating those opportunities for for fans to be exposed to motorsports in general and and not just kind of the the NASCAR National Series content that's kind of our crown jewel. 
I have to admit, I do get into some of those non-national series from time to time. Admittedly, at this point, it happens closer to February every year just because I'm psyched about Daytona and the beginning of the Cup Series events. But I do think that there is room for my fandom to grow there, and certainly that extends to the fandom of motorsport across the U.S. and abroad when it comes to the depth of the experience and the consumption. Speaking to the depth that goes into putting these sorts of environments and experiences together, I do want to ask a question that is uh, less driver and fan-centric and more business-centric, just because NASCAR is, in my opinion, probably the sport which is most intertwined with the brands with which it partners. Uh, Sponsors are inextricably linked in some cases with teams and drivers and uh, car numbers and even colors over time, though their logos may change, the memories do not. And so I'm curious as, again, the person who curates the digital environments where things are always changing, but where brands are consistently asking for more, how do you thoughtfully include the brands that sponsor and pony up crazy amounts of money to the sport and to drivers and teams How do you include them in the digital environment and how do you expect that to evolve over time as well? Yeah, I think there's two words that I come back to on the the sponsorship front in our sport and that's authentic and honest. And, and the reason I use those two is because I think in, in a, you know, and this goes beyond sports uh, across all of media. I I think uh, consumers are just conditioned now to be accepting of, of advertising and marketing that messaging and that promotion is intertwined in almost anything that you do on a day-to-day basis. I think the authentic and and honest relationship that our sponsors have within the sport is that our fans are able to understand how those brands are supportive of their favorites. So, you know, if if you see Kevin Harvick going faster uh, and competitive and winning races and his car is branded with Subway, I think you as a fan and a consumer understand that that brand is is something that is helping that, that is making an investment in that driver and that team to allow them to be competitive. And I think you see that across the the drivers and teams in, in our sport. I think as you have that kind of honest dialogue between fans and consumers and brands, it allows that activation on on digital platforms to be a whole lot easier. Because now I think you've got a reason to integrate that Subway ad into an article or a social media post or a video featuring Kevin Harvard. So you can pull that brand through and activate it in such a way that it really feels authentic. And I think there are examples like that uh, across the board. You know, Root Insurance and, and Bubba Wallace is, is a relationship that comes to mind that uh, that came about based on Bubba's uh, involvement in some social justice issues last year. You know, and, and there are so many examples of these brand and consumer relationships through teams and drivers that, that have, you know, existed for years and years. And Denny Hamlin is now synonymous with the number 11 FedEx car. And that's because of the investment that FedEx has made in, in making that, that team more successful and making Denny as competitive and as great of a driver as, as he is. So when it comes time to, to integrate that brand into, into digital or social content, it's a much more authentic, I think, dialogue with those fans. I, I think they, they're conditioned to understand how that, uh, how that works. Mm. Gotta ask, since we are in the run-up 
to the beginning of next season. What are you most looking forward to and what should fans look the most forward to? So we, uh, we're going to make a big swing uh, at the start of next season. So uh, traditionally, the, the season starts uh, in Daytona. You've got the Clash and you've got the Duels and then you've got Daytona 500 qualifying and then obviously the Daytona 500. And that all happens in, in early to mid-February and, and the season is kind of off and running from there, which is the, the birthplace of the sport. And instead, what we're going to do next year is we're going to build a track inside of the L.A. Coliseum and uh, run that the Sunday before the Super Bowl in, in Los Angeles, which is every bit as big an undertaking as it sounds. So, you know, th- this is not something that has been done before. It's, it's not something that there's much of a blueprint for. And then, oh, by the way, the, the cars that we'll bring to that track to run that event will be the the next gen cars that have never run competitively in a in an organized race before. So to say that we're going to get out of the gate with uh, with a lot of new and uh, and and big changes is a um, probably an understatement. But we're incredibly excited about it. If if you go back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, the the experience of attending a NASCAR race in person is so unique and it's so thrilling and it's such a a sensory overload. I think we realize that that is is the ultimate unlock for fan engagement uh, in our sport. But I think we need to look for opportunities to take that experience to the fans as opposed to enticing them to come to us. So I think we, we feel like looking at markets like Los Angeles and Chicago and New York as as places that we can hold events like this, even if they are exhibition races like the race that we'll have at the L.A. Coliseum, it's high on our list of of things to do. So we're excited to kick off that way. If we have any listeners in the LA area, I would highly, highly recommend that because, and this is the host's bias here, the short track experience, as I'm sure that you saw, Tim, with your first race at Richmond, is really, really, really different from the high banks of Daytona, simply because, in my mind, just because of how loud it is, but also just because of how close everything is. And you LA residents, even if you didn't see the last racing event in the Coliseum, which was all the way back in 2013 with a bunch of trucks, which was from a series founded by a former NASCAR driver, it should be noted. This is an interesting way to dip your toes into the sport, of course, right before the marquee event to kick off the season. But for telling me a little bit more about what to expect next year broadly, especially in that digital landscape and giving me a preview as to what might come after next season, Tim Clark, a genuine honor to have you from a lifelong fan. Thank you and appreciate you coming on the show. Adam, really appreciate it. Uh, excited to, to put a bow on 21 and, and really excited to start the 22 season. So I uh, appreciate the opportunity to spend some time together and talk about that. Thanks again to Tim Clark from NASCAR for joining us as a lifelong fan myself. I look forward to seeing that digital evolution in real time. And thanks to you, the listener, for exploring the future of fandom with us. I'd encourage you to stay connected. So subscribe to The Future of Fandom wherever you listen to your podcasts, or you can also find all our content at livelike.com. Across socials, we're also on LinkedIn at LiveLike and Twitter at LiveLikeInc. I look forward to predicting the future again with you real soon. Until then, I'm Adam Connor saying so long and thanks for being a fan.